This is Chapter Nine of Alonzo Fitz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alonzo Fitz and Other Stories by Mark Twain. Chapter Nine: Legend of Sagenfeld in Germany. Left out of A Tramp Abroad because its authenticity seemed doubtful and could not at that time be proved. M. T. One. More than a thousand years ago, this small district was a kingdom, a little bit of a kingdom a sort of dainty little toy kingdom, as one might say. It was far removed from the jealousies, strifes, and turmoils of that old warlike day, and so its life was a simple life, its people a gentle and guileless race. It lay always in a deep dream of peace, a soft Sabbath tranquillity. There was no malice, there was no envy, there was no ambition. Consequently, there were no heart-burnings, there was no unhappiness in the land. In the course of time the old king died and his little son Hubert came to the throne. The people's love for him grew daily. He was so good and so pure and so noble that by and by his love became a passion, almost a worship. Now at his birth the soothsayers had diligently studied the stars and found something written in that shining book to this effect. In Hubert's fourteenth year a pregnant event will happen. The animal whose singing shall sound sweetest in Hubert's ear shall save Hubert's life. So long as the king and the nation shall honor this animal's race for this good deed, the ancient dynasty shall not fail of an heir, nor the nation know war or pestilence or poverty. But beware an erring choice." all through the king's thirteenth year but one thing was talked of by the soothsayers the statesmen the little parliament and the general people that one thing was this how is the last sentence of the prophecy to be understood what goes before seems to mean that the saving animal will choose itself at the proper time but the closing sentence seems to mean that the king must choose beforehand, and say what singer among the animals pleases him best, and that if he choose wisely, the chosen animal will save his life, his dynasty, his people, but that if he should make an erring choice, beware. By the end of the year there were as many opinions about this matter as there had been in the beginning, but a majority of the wise and the simple were agreed that the safest plan would be for the little king to make choice beforehand, and the earlier the better. So an edict was sent forth commanding all persons who owned singing creatures to bring them to the great hall of the palace in the morning of the first day of the new year. This command was obeyed. When everything was in readiness for the trial, the king made his solemn entry with the great officers of the crown, all clothed in their robes of state. The king mounted his golden throne and prepared to give judgment, but he presently said, "'These creatures all sing at once. The noise is unendurable. No one can choose in such a turmoil. Take them all away, and bring back one at a time.' This was done." One sweet warbler after another charmed the young king's ear and was removed to make way for another candidate. The precious minutes slipped by. Among so many bewitching songsters he found it hard to choose, and all the harder because the promised penalty for an error was so terrible that it unsettled his judgment, 
and made him afraid to trust his own ears. He grew nervous, and his face showed distress. His ministers saw this, for they never took their eyes from him a moment. Now they began to say in their hearts, He has lost courage. The cool head is gone. He will err. He and his dynasty and his people are doomed. At the end of an hour the king sat silent a while, and then said, Bring back the linnet. The linnet trilled forth her jubilant music. In the midst of it the king was about to uplift his scepter in sign of choice, but checked himself, and said, But let us be sure. Bring back the thrush. Let them sing together. The thrush was brought, and the two birds poured out their marvels of song together. The king wavered. Then his inclination began to settle and strengthen. One could see it in his countenance. Hope budded in the hearts of the old ministers. Their pulses began to beat quicker. The scepter began to rise slowly, when there was a hideous interruption. It was a sound like this, just at the door. Everybody was sorely startled, and enraged at himself for showing it. The next instant the dearest, sweetest, prettiest little peasant-maid of nine years came tripping in, her brown eyes glowing with childish eagerness. But when she saw that august company and those angry faces she stopped, and hung her head, and put her poor coarse apron to her eyes. Nobody gave her welcome, none pitied her. Presently she looked up timidly through her tears, and said, "'My lord the king, I pray you pardon me, for I meant no wrong. I have no father and no mother, but I have a goat and a donkey, and they are all in all to me. My goat gives me the sweetest milk, and when my dear good donkey brays, it seems to me there is no music like to it. So when my lord the king's jester said the sweetest singer among all the animals should save the crown and nation, and moved me to bring him here, all the court burst into a rude laugh and the child fled away crying, without trying to finish her speech. The chief minister gave a private order that she and her disastrous donkey be flogged beyond the precincts of the palace, and commanded to come within them no more. Then the trial of the birds was resumed. The two birds sang their best, but the scepter lay motionless in the king's hand. Hope died slowly out in the breasts of all. An hour went by, two hours, still no decision. The day waned to its close, and the waiting multitudes outside the palace grew crazed with anxiety and apprehension. The twilight came on, the shadows fell deeper and deeper. The king and his court could no longer see each other's faces. No one spoke, none called for lights. The great trial had been made, it had failed. Each and all wished to hide their faces from the light, and cover up their deep trouble in their own hearts. Finally, hark, a rich, full strain of the divinest melody streamed forth from a remote part of the hall, the nightingale's voice. Up! shouted the king. Let all the bells make proclamation to the people, for the choice is made, and we have not erred. King, dynasty, and nation are saved. From henceforth let the nightingale be honored throughout the land forever and publish it among all the people that whosoever shall insult a nightingale, or injure it, shall suffer death. The king hath spoken. 
all that little world was drunk with joy the castle and the city blazed with bonfires all night long the people danced and drank and sang and the triumphant clamor of the bells never ceased from that day the nightingale was a sacred bird its song was heard in every house the poets wrote its praises the painters painted it its sculptured image adorned every arch and turret and fountain and public building it was even taken into the king's councils and no grave matter of state was decided until the soothsayers had laid the thing before the state nightingale and translated to the ministry what it was that the bird had sung about it two the young king was very fond of the chase when the summer was come he rode forth with hawk and hound one day in a brilliant company of his nobles he got separated from them by and by in a great forest and took what he imagined a near cut to find them again but it was a mistake he rode on and on hopefully at first but with sinking courage finally twilight came on and still he was plunging through a lonely and unknown land then came a catastrophe in the dim light he forced his horse through a tangled thicket overhanging a steep and rocky declivity when horse and rider reached the bottom the former had a broken neck and the latter a broken leg the poor little king lay there suffering agonies of pain and each hour seemed a long month to him he kept his ear strained to hear any sound that might promise hope of rescue but he heard no voice no sound of horn or bay of hound so at last he gave up all hope and said let death come for come it must just then the deep sweet song of a nightingale swept across the still wastes of the night saved the king said saved it is the sacred bird and the prophecy is come true the gods themselves protected me from error in the choice he could hardly contain his joy he could not word his gratitude every few moments now he thought he caught the sound of approaching succor but each time it was a disappointment no succor came the dull hours drifted on still no help came but still the sacred bird sang on he began to have misgivings about his choice but he stifled them toward dawn the bird ceased the morning came and with it thirst and hunger but no succor. The day waxed and waned. At last the king cursed the nightingale. Immediately the song of the thrush came from out the wood. The king said in his heart, This was the true bird. My choice was false. Succor will come now. But it did not come. Then he lay many hours insensible. When he came to himself, a linnet was singing. He listened with apathy. His faith was gone these birds he said can bring no help i and my house and my people are doomed he turned him about to die for he was grown very feeble from hunger and thirst and suffering and felt that his end was near in truth he wanted to die and be released from pain for long hours he lay without thought or feeling or motion then his senses returned the dawn of the third morning was breaking ah the world seemed very beautiful to those worn eyes suddenly a great longing to live rose up in the lad's heart and from his soul welled a deep and fervent prayer that heaven would have mercy upon him 
and let him see his home and his friends once more in that instant a soft a faint a far-off sound but oh how inexpressibly sweet to his waiting ear came floating out of the distance that oh that song is sweeter a thousand times sweeter than the voice of the nightingale thrush or linnet for it brings not mere hope but certainty of succor and now indeed am i saved the sacred singer has chosen itself as the oracle intended the prophecy is fulfilled and my life my house and my people are redeemed the ass shall be sacred from this day the divine music grew nearer and nearer stronger and stronger and ever sweeter and sweeter to the perishing sufferer's ear down the declivity the docile little donkey wandered cropping herbage and singing as he went and when at last he saw the dead horse and the wounded king he came and snuffed at them with simple and marvelling curiosity the king petted him and he knelt down as had been his wont when his little mistress desired to mount with great labor and pain the lad drew himself upon the creature's back and held himself there by aid of the generous ears the ass went singing forth from the place and carried the king to the little peasant maid's hut she gave him her pallet for a bed refreshed him with goat's milk and then flew to tell the great news to the first scouting party of searchers she might meet the king got well his first act was to proclaim the sacredness and the inviolability of the ass his second was to add this particular ass to his cabinet and make him chief minister of the crown his third was to have all the statues and effigies of nightingales throughout his kingdom destroyed and replaced by statues and effigies of the sacred donkey and his fourth was to announce that when the little peasant maid should reach her fifteenth year he would make her his queen and he kept his word such is the legend this explains why the mouldering image of the ass adorns all these old crumbling walls and arches and it explains why during many centuries an ass was always the chief minister in that royal cabinet just as is still the case in most cabinets to this day and it also explains why in that little kingdom during many centuries all great poems all great speeches all great books all public solemnities and all royal proclamations always began with these stirring words <coughs> end of chapter nine